Well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we are jumping back into our mini-series on marriage. Uh, it wasn't initially designed that way, but that's the way it's turned out. And uh, we are, again, uh, jumping into the series that we've been doing all summer called uh, Transformed, Learning to Think Biblically. And again, this morning's topic is marriage, and I think it's quite fitting that we, we have a second week talking about marriage. There's so much we could discuss, and I, I must confess to you that even in two weeks, we are uh, only covering a, a small degree of information when it comes to marriage. And I understand that even as we dive into God's Word today, I'm not going to be able to hit absolutely everything that pertains to marriage, and there's so much more I want to say, but I cannot at this point, so you'll have to bear with me, and uh, we're going to dig into God's Word here. Uh, Last week, we began this topic of learning to think biblically about marriage, and we really focused in on the concept of covenant and the nature of a marriage and the uniqueness of that relationship. We went back to Genesis 2.24, and we looked at how God had designed uh, a paradigm for marriage in the very early chapters of the Bible, and flowing out of there, we saw so much. If you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message and just get an understanding of the way God designed marriage and, and the reason he gave us marriage. And, uh, and, and we kind of left off last week with one crucial piece missing. You see, what was designed as good and created as good in the Garden of Eden was marred very quickly by sin. And the destruction that is, been, that is produced in marriage is actually cleaned up through the picture that marriage presents. As we begin kind of thinking about marriage, I want to just put before you this idea that Christians actually have a very distinct view of marriage. And I understand that even in here, there might be a variety of different beliefs about marriage. Maybe you come in this place and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you come with your own kind of assumptions about marriage or understandings about marriage. And I just, I hope that this morning, my prayer is that you would hear what the scripture teaches about marriage. But more than that, my prayer is that you would hear God's heart behind that. Why does he say these things about marriage? And by the way, even if you leave here disagreeing and not on board with what the Bible says about marriage, my hope and prayer is that you feel at the very least like you are welcome here and you're respected. And if you want to have further conversations about marriage and what God says about marriage, you would be welcome to do that in this place. We would encourage that actually. It wasn't long ago that there was a commonly held belief about marriage in our culture. Marriage was seen as being between one man and one woman, and it was seen as being permanent for life. It's not until very recently that there is a divergence between what the church believes about marriage and what the culture believes about marriage. And I think this is important. In recent times, marriage has been under the attack of the world. But I want to encourage you in this. You see, this ought to remind us that Christians have a very distinct, particular, unique view of marriage, and it is the biblical view of marriage. And rather than being a means to self-fulfillment and personal happiness, as the world often views marriage, the Word of God helps us understand the uniqueness of this relationship as being a covenant relationship. Our view of marriage used to be a point of contact with the world around us. Now it's a point of distinction, and that's okay, actually. That can be a very powerful apologetic for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are reminded in our view of marriage 
that we are a countercultural people, that we are strangers and aliens in this land, that we are sojourning through this land on our way to our home. Biblical marriage is incredibly important to understand, and God's design for marriage is actually beautiful, and I want to encourage you, in, in a time when the biblical view of marriage is under attack, we need not be ashamed of the biblical view of marriage. We need to uphold and honor a biblical view of marriage. A biblical marriage is not outdated and old-fashioned. It's not some kind of religious moral code that we simply stick by. It's actually a blueprint for human flourishing from a God who never runs out of wisdom and who loves his creation more than we can ever fathom. In fact, marriage is intended to display God's loving relationship to his creation in a very profound way. Marriage matters for everyone, and I qualified this last week. Let me do it again. Whether you're single, whether you're widowed, or whether you're divorced, our objective here is not to make you feel like some kind of a subclass Christian or some kind of a second-tier follower of Christ. By the way, the Bible paints two different pictures that are equally as valuable for believers in Jesus Christ. Marriage is seen as a gift of God, and singleness is seen as a gift from God. Both of them are means God uses and conditions of life that God uses to further a common mission and goal of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both are seen as good. We don't want to devalue you if you are single. We don't want to devalue you if you are struggling in marriage or if your marriage has been destroyed. We want you to understand, in fact, I would encourage you, maybe just from my heart to yours, even if you're single and not desiring to pursue marriage, you need to understand a biblical view of marriage because those who are married in the body of Christ, they need your help too. They need you to come alongside, like I do, need you to come alongside and to help encourage us to have marriages that are pleasing to the Lord. All of us need to have a biblical understanding of marriage. And what we're going to do is we're going to dive into Ephesians 5. Now, I'm going to read the entire section beginning at verse 22 and 33, but then we're going to do something kind of unique. We're going to actually work backwards through the text, and I trust that you'll see the reason I do that as we move through. So let's begin. Let's read the entire text together. It says, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um, before we dive in here, I'm going to make a request from the back. Is there any way we can kill these lights on me? I feel like I might cook to death up here. And uh, I had flashbacks of watching Mark up there sweating and feeling terrible for him. Thank you, Mark, suffering for Jesus. 
I was, I was also reminded, I was telling the worship team, you know, our first world problems when it comes to church, right? I remember marching up a mountain in Nepal to go to church where people marched for three hours, sometimes five hours, just simply to get to church. And uh, these old ladies would laugh at us as they march up these mountains like it's nothing and we're huffing and puffing, you know, bent over. And then they start worshiping for three hours, you know. It's, we have it pretty good. We have it pretty good. All right, thank you. That's very helpful. I already feel the difference. And now you can't see the sweat marks on my forehead. Uh, we are diving in here. We're going to go backwards through this text. And I want to show you three things out of this text that help us understand God's purpose for marriage. The first is this, the gospel picture, union. The gospel picture that it presents and the union that it demonstrates to the world. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is really getting to the heart of the marriage. This is the most explicit text on marriage in the entire Bible. And Paul, what he does is he quotes from Genesis 2.24. You'll notice this. Begin at verse 30 with me. He says, because we are members of his body, there's a picture of union, of unity together. And then he says this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. He goes back to Genesis 2.24, rooting his theology of marriage. Listen, this is really, really important. Not in first century Greco-Roman culture, but in God's design from creation. And he's highlighting the covenant union between a man and a woman. And this is so critically important. You see, we have to understand that even in Paul's day, he's confronting a cultural expectation and norm when it comes to marriage. And he wants to drive them back to what God actually says about marriage. In the first century, marriage was incredibly devalued. I mean, it was taken so lightly in the pagan world, in the secular world, where marriage and adultery was so commonplace in the secular world, and it was really viewed as nothing. Even in the the Jewish world, they were divorcing people left, right, and center for the silliest of reasons. And here, what Paul wants to do is drive us right back to the beginning, and he's highlighting the covenant union between a man and a woman. And I'm not going to dive too much into that covenant concept because we spent a lot of time there last week. But let's just be reminded that that covenant relationship is incredibly important, that binding relationship that is permanent and lasting. And a covenant is very different than a contract. A contract is a transactional relationship. A covenant is a binding relationship, and in the biblical sense, held together by God. That's why Jesus said these famous words that we repeat at at every wedding ceremony, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, we often focus our attention on that last part, let no man separate, instead of the first part, which is more important, listen, which God has joined together. God is the one who unites a couple together. He is partaking in that covenant relationship. Many of you are familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the famous theologian, pastor, spy during the Second World War. What many people don't know is that while he was imprisoned under the Nazi regime, he would eventually be martyred for his faith. He was actually engaged. And in prison, he would write letters to his fiancée. And so many of them are deep and rich, and they explain a really vibrant theology of marriage. And one of the things I love that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says as he writes to his, what he thought would be his to-be wife one day, 
relates to this idea of covenant as opposed to this concept of chemistry. You know, so often people want, want to live in marriage and think that marriage will flourish when there's chemistry. And you know what I mean by that? When there's that emotional spark, when there's that romantic passion, that's when true love can really flourish. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes right at that idea. And here's what he says. He says to his fiance, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but for now on the marriage that sustains the love. What he's saying is so profound. It's that covenant commitment before God that provides the framework and structure for a relationship to thrive and flourish and deepen. And that's where true love is found as that union together, and especially in a Christian sense, that union together with God is built and strengthened. This is the power of covenant to sustain and create genuine love. Covenant creates true love over time that results in a greater oneness. And again, we see that picture, Paul drawing attention to the two becoming one flesh, this comprehensive oneness, spiritual, physical, emotional, financial, in every way a couple becomes one. But this union is only made possible by two partners who are different enough to complement one another. And Genesis 1 tells us that we are created equal in dignity, in value, and in worth. That's important to, to state in our day and age, and it was important to state in, in Paul's day too. You see, they saw men and women on two different playing fields. They saw women as a much lower down the rung. They were greatly devalued and underappreciated, and Paul draws attention to the fact that the Bible and God's plan has always elevated women. They're always seen as being equal with men in dignity and in worth and in value, but what it also highlights is that we were created different. Again, contrary to what our culture wants to believe, men and women are different, and we know this, we know this, and it's not simple biology, by the way, that the world right now wants to convince us that gender is merely a social construct. It's something that is not rooted in our DNA and in biology, and yet the Bible makes very clear that gender is something that God created. It is embedded in who we are. We're different, certainly physically. We're different oftentimes, and I don't want a broad brush with you know, this, and I understand this is over, overly generalized, but we're different emotionally. We have different makeups, the way we think and the way we act, and so often we see these differences. Uh, I see them in my young children very early on. Why does God make us different? Well, first, it's not for the sake of competing with each other, but for complementing each other. Gender differences are the basis for our sexual and marital union. And last week, we, we looked at those four reasons flowing out of Genesis to there for marriage. But this one is so significant, and it is revealed in the New Testament. And Paul draws our attention to it in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He says, in effect, listen, that marriage is a picture of Christ's covenant-keeping love for the church. It is a beautiful, powerful, profound picture of that covenant love that Jesus has for the church. And what this means is that he's telling us that our marriages are supposed to be an exhibit to this world of God's covenant love for his people. 
People, in other words, should be able to look to our marriages inside the church and say, that's how Christ loves the church. Oh, that's what grace looks like. That's what reconciliation looks like. That's what loyalty and obedience looks like. Our marriages are supposed to display that to a world that has been utterly wrecked by sin and utterly destroyed by sin. It's a sign pointing to an even greater reality, the union of Christ and his bride, the church. And I just want you to think about that. So often, we think that marriage is the end game. And we we fail to, to see the true depth of what marriage is. And what's so incredible, listen, is this. Marriage actually points us to something beautiful, something profound. It's, but it's kind of like this. A lot of people view marriage like this. Like looking at a stop sign. You know, you imagine driving down the road, looking at a stop sign, and just, wow, admiring the stop. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that brightness of that red. Like it is beautiful as you sail right through the stop sign. And so many, so many Christians are admiring the gift of marriage without realizing the purpose of marriage, of seeing what it's truly for, of seeing what it points us toward. And here, Paul wants us to understand something very deep, that marriage points us to something great. The intimacy of marriage points us to an intimacy between Christ and his people, that permanent union that we have with him, listen, for eternity. It's pointing us to something beyond and greater than marriage. That's what marriage is for. And then Paul closes this section in verse 33 by summarizing what he's already said about our roles and order in marriage. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And it's, it's interesting the way that Paul frames this, notice he doesn't say uh, respect one another and love one another. Of course, that's absolutely true and that's to be the case in every marriage, but here he directs specific commands to the specific genders. And in so doing, listen, he's leaning into their nature of being made differently and having different roles in the marriage and that leads us to our second point, the gospel priorities order. The gospel priorities order. And again, we're going to go backwards, so we're going to look at the men's role in marriage first. He begins in verse 25 saying, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. When we talk about roles in marriage, we need to be really, really careful. And I understand this is a very sensitive sensitive issue, even in our culture, especially in our culture, but even in the church. There's two different dangers that we need to be aware of and we need to avoid You see, some people want to dismiss gender roles altogether and say again that they're a product of a a society, a social construct. There are others who want to read our cultural assumptions into our understanding of roles. And the Bible, I believe, wants us to avoid those two extremes. Gender roles are part of the original, Edenic, good creation. 
In fact, in, in Eden, we actually see that there is an attack right out the gates on gender roles and on the order that God has given to creation and to humanity. I mean, if, if you just think back to the Garden of Eden for a minute, I mean, who did the serpent tempt? It was Eve, not Adam. Why? Why did he tempt even not Adam? It's, it's theological and it's intentional on the part of the serpent. You see, he's going around God's order. He's usurping God's authority. And we see, by the way, the idea of authority and, and male headship, and Paul's gonna draw attention to that when he speaks to the wives, but we see this in the way God created Adam and Eve. He creates Adam first. And then notice this, he creates Eve out of the side of Adam. You know, he gets in there, he gets a rib out, and he creates a woman. And, and you know, women, women are created out of man, and that's emphasized in the Bible. Men, don't get a big head about that. You're created out of dust, okay? Um, God brings the woman to Adam, and he names her, and in the ancient world, that was significant, and it demonstrated authority. And so what we see is Satan attacking this idea of God's order, usurping God's authority, and what we see is Adam failing miserably in the Garden of Eden, by the way, and instead of leading and protecting and loving his wife, he followed her right into sin, it was the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen. It was a reversal of the roles. It was an inversion of the order. And the resulting curse is catastrophic. And by the way, we notice that the curses are actually unique. God curses man in regards to his work and his toil. And God curses Eve in regards to her responsibilities with bearing children and raising children. And the relationship is now gonna have friction and tension and disorder. Now, now we see that there is unbelievable disorder in our relationships and man's natural bent in his sinful flesh is to domineer, is to subjugate, is to objectify women. And while men were made to lead, they often abused that leadership and we've seen that in the culture. We've seen even people in the church abuse texts like this and use them for their own selfish gain and use them to uh, domineer over women we just want to acknowledge that that is not what this text is pointing us towards. Oftentimes, the, the other extreme with men is they, they either objectify and oppress women, listen, or they, they find themselves being passive and abdicating their leadership responsibilities. Ironically, that's exactly what Adam did, and I think that that's what we see more often in our culture, too. And the answer to the, the wars, the gender wars that we experience in our culture and sometimes in our own marriages is not to find freedom from gender, but to find God-ordained purpose and order in gender. And so Paul here goes after men, and you'll notice men that God gives uh, nine verses to the men and three to the women, and, and just, that, just so you know, I think that's intentional on the part of God because there's a greater weight of responsibility laid upon the men. Probably because men take a little longer to get some stuff too. So he's just driving it in. He gives, he gives way more space than he does to women. And oftentimes we're inclined to think that the part to the wives is the most culturally abrasive. But here's what's fascinating. Listen, the part to the men was the most culturally abrasive at the time that this was written. I mean, it would have been normal for women to be treated like dirt. It would have been normal for women to feel, you know, subjugated, to be, feel like they were lesser. And, and, and so here what we see for a woman to submit in that culture was kind of normal in, that, in, the, in one sense. 
But men, to, to hear this call to love your wife as Christ loved the church, this would have been so foreign in a Greco-Roman world. I mean, you were required as a husband to provide a roof over your wife's head and children that were legitimate. That's what you were required to do. I read some ancient literature, uh, they were talking about marriage, and I couldn't believe the way they understood marriage, especially uh, with their actual wife and the the way they would treat their wife. And and one person said, you know, you're required to put a roof over her head, you're not required to talk to her. Sounds like a lot of marriages in our culture. Give my life for her? Put her good above my own? Men, the call here is to be just that, a man, a biblical man, to throw out the cultural assumptions of what it means to be a man and to be informed by the scriptures. And verse 25 says it all. Love your wives, husbands, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He calls us to love our wives like Christ loved the church, and then he gives us three very specific ways to do that. So men, uh, you might want to take some notes, okay? Your wives are elbowing you right now. Get this down. First is this, here's how you love your wife, with sacrificial love, sacrificial love. And Jesus here, by the way, man, is our model of what sacrificial love means and what it looks like, what, if it's, what it's made up of. This is so important and it's so practical. How does Jesus love the church? By sacrificing, he gave himself for her. The cross is the greatest picture of sacrificial love. Here is Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, laying down his life, giving himself out of love. Men, your priority should be to set your wife up to flourish. Your supreme objective in marriage is not simply your own good, it's the good of your wife. So much so that you are willing to sacrifice yourself for her well-being. You sacrifice, men, listen, your time, your preferences, your energy. I love this because I think in our culture, men, you know, we're so self-absorbed, and this is humanity in general. We're so self-absorbed, you know, we come home from work and, and we want to just, you know, relax and do our own thing and, you know, don't talk to me, don't bother me, I mean, just keep the kids away from me, I just need me time. And, you know, the biblical picture of being a man is that you wring yourself out for your family, for your wife, you care for them with every ounce of energy you have. Men, listen, I was, I was so struck by this, Matt Chandler, he, he preached a message and he was calling men to be men, and he, he, he exhorted men, listen, you should be going to bed tired. You should go to bed tired at night because of how much you have poured into your family, not because of how focused you've been on yourself and your own pursuits and your own career, your own things, because you have given yourself to your family. You've given yourself for your wife. You've sacrificed what might be more pleasing to you, what might be more preferential for you, what might bring you more pleasure, and you give it away for the good of someone else. You get down, and you, you, you get down on your knees like Jesus did, and you go around and you wash your wife's feet. What can this look like? Man, you need to pray for your, your wife. Think about how Jesus loved the church. He prayed, prayed for the church. He prayed for his disciples. Man, if you're not praying for your wife specifically, I'm telling you right now, you're in sin.
How else did Christ love the church? Men, let me just exhort you in this as I exhort my own heart to be an initiator in this relationship with your wife. To initiate. Listen, we love, why? Because he first loved us. If you're gonna model the kind of love and sacrifice that Christ has for the church in your marriage, listen, you have to do it like he did. He loved us when we were unlovely. He came after us first. And men, just practically speaking, you need to be the one who spiritually is leading. You need to initiate that. You need to initiate spiritual conversations in your family. You need to initiate prayer with your wife. You need to initiate family worship in your home. You need to initiate gospel community. You need to initiate church involvement. Don't leave that on your wife to do. Step up. Love your wife like that. Men, you need to be the one who makes the first steps towards reconciliation with your spouse. We're called to have that sacrificial love. Secondly, notice this sanctifying love. Sanctifying love. Verses 26 and 27 really spell this out, that he might sanctify her. That word means to be set apart unto holiness. It has to do with spiritual growth. Notice this, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the ancient world, the wife would go through this ritual of being presented to her groom, a cleansing ritual where they're purified and washed and prepared and given over in such beauty and splendor. Men, God wants you to be a tool to sanctify your wife, to help make her holy. You are one of the primary tools that God is going to use in her life in this endeavor. And here, you see the tool that we use is the word of God. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. The word is like a spiritual detergent. You know, our, our, our feet get dirty as we walk to the world and we need to be washed and cleansed regularly. And that's the picture that we have here, this constant washing over with the word of God. And men, here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean sitting your wife down and giving her a lecture on theology, okay? It means speaking truth to her. It means speaking to her about the truth of the Word of God. It means asking her about her spiritual struggles, about her spiritual successes, the joys and the pains of life, what she's learning, telling her what you're learning, what God is doing in your life. Men, let me, let me ask you this. Does your wife see you in the Word of God? If you're going to be a man of God who, who is a, a sanctifying tool in the life of your wife and, Lord willing, your family, are you a man who is in the Word himself? Uh, does your family see that in you? Or do they see someone who wants to beat them down with biblical truth but isn't actually in it, loving it, and living it? Are you encouraging her with the Word? Are you leading her by the Word I read this quote this week by Kent Hughes. Listen to this, men. Is your wife more Christ-like because of you or in spite of you? We need sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and thirdly here, we need self-love. 
self-love and not the, the, the secular psychology understanding of loving yourself, the biblical picture of loving self. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The call here is very simple and straightforward. You are to love her in the same way that you love yourself. And everybody loves themselves. That's what the point is here. Everybody loves themselves, and that's demonstrated by the way you care for yourself, care for your body. And the reality is, this is really second nature to us, isn't it? We get up in the morning, uh, we brush our teeth, we put clothes on, we eat food. We, we do this kind of instinctively because this is how we care for ourselves. We provide for our daily needs. I remember Vodi Bakum preaching on this topic, and this quote has always stuck with me. You know, oftentimes men, when they, they think about getting married, they, they look at their wife and they say, she's now mine. And the quote that I love that he says this, you need to think of, of your wife like this, man. She's not mine, she's me. She's me. We are one flesh. And I treat her the way I treat myself. I care for her the way I would care for myself. And the way we do that can be very obvious. Let me just give you a few ways. Obviously, the providing aspect of your relationship, that caring aspect, but beyond just the physical needs of life, can I just encourage you that we nourish and cherish our wives when we are committed to communicating? You know, think about that, communicating with her. That's how we love ourselves. We communicate all the time. I, I talk to myself all the time, and so do you, right? And it's not that crazy. It's not as crazy as you might think. We're constantly talking to ourselves, telling ourselves what to do, reminding ourselves of what is true. I mean, part of, part of being a faithful Christian is preaching to ourselves the gospel every day, right? We need that. But listen, men, we need to be those who are committed to communicating with our wives, to listening, to paying attention, to being sensitive. You know, in the same way that we're sensitive to the needs of our bodies, of our souls, of our minds, we need to be sensitive to our wives in the same way. Be sensitive to her emotional needs, to her feelings. Be sensitive to her desires. Know her dreams. Man, masculinity is not about lifting weights, driving trucks, shooting guns, and yes, as hard as it is for me to say, it's not even about eating bacon or beef. By the way, that's, that's not just manly, that's for everybody. <laughs> you, you are most manly men, listen, when you show restraint, when you show self-control, when you show respect, and when you demonstrate love in giving yourself for another you are most manly when you look most like Jesus Christ. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that. Wives, verses 22 through 24, spell out God's plan for you, the gospel priorities in your relationship. The order that he has given is very clear. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And this is hard to hear because we see submission as being oppressive. It's kind of like a curse word in our culture and society. And, you know, the feminist liberation movement has, has made sure that we understand that this word has no place in the vocabulary between men and women, husbands and wives. We need to erase it. We need to eradicate it. It doesn't belong. But the Bible is very clear. 
And I understand sometimes this is hard for a lot of people to hear because, listen, submission has often been abused even in the church culture, even by Christians. Some of you in here today are actually abusing this idea of your wife's submission in your leadership in the home. And it's unacceptable. It's not appropriate. It dishonors God. There's been so much oppression towards women and We oftentimes see submission as just that, being oppressive, rather than displaying divine order, divine harmony, and in no way devaluing the equality that God has given men and women. And I want you to notice what it says here, wives, submit to your own husbands. That's really important, right? Ladies, you don't have to submit to someone just because they're a man. Like My wife doesn't need to submit to you guys, okay? She doesn't. It's not saying that all women need to be submissive to all men. That is not the calling here. It's defining her role in our relationship. And that still begs the question, well, what then is submission? The word for submit in the Greek can be translated as respect, yield, or defer. It's actually two words in the Greek that means to come under another mission. It's often used in the sense of military it does not mean, listen, it does not mean do what you're told. It does not mean be a doormat. It does not mean you can be abused. It does not mean you can't have an opinion. It does not mean you're not smarter than your husband. This should be in no way used to silence women who are being mistreated or abused. And sadly, that's the way it's often been used. There is no place for abuse in marriage. What this is, though, is a voluntary alignment with the leadership of a husband, and preferably what would honor God is a godly husband who is loving his wife like Christ loved the church. Notice that. That's very specific. It is voluntary. It's not imposed, okay? Notice that it doesn't say, husbands, make sure your wives submit. doesn't say that. Submission is her choice. And it is, listen, it is a beautiful gift that she gives to her husband of her own free will with no force or coercion. Wives, it is something beautiful that you offer up to your husband. Here's why. Because it's a call to give your feelings, to give your desires, and to give your trust over to another person. The word submit is applied in all different kinds of scenarios in the Bible, but it is specifically applied to all believers in the relationship to Jesus Christ. Every believer is called to submit. Verse 24 spells it out. Now as the church submits to Christ, that's us, all of us submit to Christ in everything. I just, just want you to see, that's why Paul reinforces or qualifies this by saying, as to the Lord, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. And that's the picture that we're to have. We submit our wills, our desires, our lives in every regard to Jesus Christ as an act of total trust and devotion to him. It's an incredible display of love. And the truth is, Christians, listen, the less we submit to Christ, the more we love ourselves instead of him. And the more we submit to Christ, 
the clearer, the louder, the more obvious our love is for our Savior. And by the way, wives, Jesus is the model of this as well. Jesus is the model of what it means to to display perfect submission. I mean, think about the way he submitted to the will of the Father. In every way, this models Jesus Christ, the husband's role, the wife's role. Christ is a picture for both of us on how to do this faithfully, even when it's hard. Verse 23 gives us the reason for submission. Notice this, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his, is himself the Savior. And again, I mentioned this before, but the way that God has designed this The order is that men are the head, and that simply means this, that God has given them a delegated authority to lead their wives and to lead their families, and men, this is a massive, massive responsibility. Here's what this means for you and me. God holds men responsible to lead a healthy marriage. That means that we will actually stand before God and give an account for how we have done in that. To God, authority is about responsibility, not bossing people around. Think of Adam and Eve again in Genesis 3. Eve takes the bite, but Adam gets in trouble. Don't you love that? God holds Adam responsible. And the disorder that led to the fall and the destruction of marriage was evident as the order was reversed. And the order that God establishes reflects what is to be our gospel priorities, that Christ leads us in love by giving himself for us. We submit joyfully and trusting ourselves to him as an act of love. By the way, um, God's way is always the best way. Do you believe that? Can I get an amen somewhere? Like God's way is always the best way, amen? Amen. God's order is always better than the way we want to do it. God's way is always better. This order is for our good. It leads to a healthy marriage. It leads to a vibrant marriage. It leads to a thriving marriage. And it's always for his glory. It points us to a powerful presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our third point, the gospel pursuit, Christ-likeness. And I just want to kind of go back in and just pull out a principle here that I think is critical for us to understand in marriage. A husband's greatest motive for loving, purifying, protecting, and caring for his wife is Christ's love, purifying, protecting, and caring for his bride, the church. That picture hopefully is very clear in your mind. Verses 26 and 27 make that so clear. Christian marriage is to be loving, holy, pure, self-sacrificing because those virtues characterize the relationship between Christ and the church. Here's what that means, listen. That means that the mission of marriage is the joint adventure of pursuing God together in deep friendship that spurs one another on to greater love and devotion to Jesus Christ. I love that, thank you. Let me say that again. The mission of marriage is the joint adventure of pursuing God together in deep friendship that spurs one another on to greater love and devotion to Christ. Just pause for a minute. Is that what's happening in your marriage? Is that what you're looking, if you're single, listen, is that what you're looking for in marriage? When we look at the gospel and when we understand the gospel, we know this, that Jesus died not because we were lovely, 
but to make us lovely. That's the gospel. Jesus died because we were wretched, undeserving sinners. We were marred. We were filthy. We were unworthy. Listen, but he died not because we were lovely. He died to make us lovely. He died to purify us. He died to make us something beautiful. The apostle Paul says that he died to make us holy. That means, listen, that your job as a spouse is to help your spouse love Jesus more than they love you. Let me say that again, that is so important. Your job as a spouse is to help your spouse love Jesus more than they love you. More than they love anybody or anything on the face of this earth. You're married to an unbeliever. You say, well, well, what about me? I mean, what's my job? Your job is to show your spouse that God loves them more than you ever could. You're to show them Christ in the way you love them. You're to demonstrate that faithful, steadfast, Christ-like love so that they look at you and say, well, why are you doing this? How are you doing this? And you can just simply say, because my God loves me and my God loves you. You're single and you're saying, well, how does this apply to me? Listen, grow in your love for Jesus now. Make that your supreme pursuit in this life. Grow to love Jesus so much that you know the kind of spouse you want to marry, that you are searching for that spouse, and that when you marry that person by the grace of God, listen, you will be that kind of spouse who is already desiring to make them more like Jesus. Look, if you love Jesus more than you love your spouse, then and only then will you be able to truly put their needs ahead of your own. The primary goal of Christian marriage is not happiness, it's holiness. It is to demonstrate how all of creation is being made new and how it's all being brought under total subjection to Jesus Christ. Remember, the fall in the Garden of Eden, it destroyed all of creation. It groans, it longs to be recreated, to be made new, to be brought back to the way God had designed it to be. In Ephesians 5, 27 and 28, Paul gives us a direct link for the purpose of every marriage to the purpose of the ultimate marriage so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And notice this, in the same way. Those three words are so important. In the same way husbands should love their wives. Christ is intent on making us a holy people. It's his desire for you, it's his desire to me. And this side of Eden, marriage is for helping each other to become practically who we are positionally. The Bible says that we are in Christ already holy. There is a sense in which we have been robed already in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're positionally before God seen as cleansed and clean totally, totally. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. You must be given the righteousness of Christ, imputed to your account in full measure. But listen, in this life, it's called sanctification. God is practically making us who we are positionally. He is daily working it out in our lives so that we become somebody different, so that we begin daily to manifest more and more the likeness of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the whole purpose of the cross is to reconcile all of creation back to God. And the beauty of it, Paul says, is that God is beginning with you and me. He's beginning with humanity. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The problem is this takes time, right? A lot of time. For some of you, a lot longer than others. But all Christians, as we look at the Bible, have the responsibility to help each other grow in love and holiness. We are called to affirm each other's gifts, to hold each other accountable, to grow out of our sin and into obedience. How much more should a husband and wife do that? Listen, if you get this principle, that in marriage, you are to be best friends with the purpose of helping each other pursue Christ-likeness, it is a game changer. It is a game changer. We are in it for holiness, not happiness. The good news is, is that When you are seeking holiness in your marriage, happiness will flow out of that. Understanding this practically, just bear with me for another minute, helps dispel this worldly concept that there is this mythical creature out there called the one, right? They're they're right next to the unicorn and the leprechaun, the one. You don't have, listen, Christian, single person, you don't have a missing half. You're not incomplete if you're single. You're certainly not incomplete if you're married. So many people out there thinking that they'll simply be complete if they just find that one. Just talk to a married couple for five minutes. In reality, listen, marriage is just two broken people coming together to become more like Jesus. And just do the simple math on that. One broken person plus one broken person does not equal bliss. It equals twice as much brokenness. But this is a good thing. Church, this is a good, good thing. This is a gift of God. Marriage exposes the brokenness in our lives. The point of marriage isn't to find your missing half. It's to help each other become all that God intended. And believe me, if you're married, you understand how this can be used by God to expose your sin. I used to think I was pretty selfless. Then I got married, and in five minutes, I realized how self-absorbed I was. And then a bunch of little sinners got added to the picture, and man, God just rebukes me all the time about my selfishness. In marriage, somebody sees all of the cracks, all of the dirt, all of the failures, and they stand beside you, and oftentimes it's a little louder than we want or a little clearer than we want, and they hold up the mirror and they say, this is you, this is you, not that person you're pretending to be. And listen, our problem is is that we resist that. We don't like it. We get angry. We justify. We shoot back venom and we say, how dare you? And well, you're just like this. But listen, we need to begin to see this as the gift of God in our lives. God is saying, I love you. I love you so much. I'm going to put somebody in such close proximity to you. They see everything and they tell you everything. It's a gift from God. And God's saying, look, I want you to grow. I want you to change. I want you to be made holy. I want you to look more like Jesus Christ.
God's calling us in our marriages to lift high the name of Jesus, to show the world, listen, that he is exalted in our marriage, and in so doing, we're giving the world a glimpse of this reality, that he is to be exalted over all, that he is in the process of bringing all things into subjection to him. He rules, he reigns, and our marriages ought to be a blazing declaration that our God reigns. Our marriages and our view of marriage can paint this much-needed picture. Listen, in a world that is so tragically wrecked by sin, I love what one author says. He says, listen, marriage is a safe place to return to the garden and work together to show the world the image of God, to show the world how captivating God is. Married or not, we are all involved in a greater marriage, the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. We all await the coming of the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who is coming again to reclaim his bride and to complete the work that he started in us. Then we will celebrate our eternal union with reestablished order in perfect Christ-likeness. Father, we pray that you would give our hearts a sense of wonder and awe at the mystery of marriage. God, the beauty of marriage, of what it is, and Lord, what we get to experience in the, the, the gift of marriage, the relationship, the intimacy. But God, beyond that, whether we're married or not, I pray, God, that we would have a greater appreciation for what physical, earthly, human marriage points us to, that we wouldn't stop and admire the stop sign as we blow right through forgetting that it is pointing us to something so much more magnificent, so much more beautiful, Lord, that unending eternal union we have with the God of this universe because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The intimacy that we get to share with him, the fellowship, the joy, the satisfaction for our souls. Lord, there is coming a day where there will be no more marriage as we know it. There will only be the marriage in heaven, the church to the groom, Jesus Christ. And it is there, Lord, that we want to rest. In our earthly marriages, Lord, may we find our greatest source of joy and satisfaction in being united to Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, whether we are single, whether our marriages have been destroyed, or whether, Lord, we have failed in so many ways and are living, Lord, in brokenness in our own marriages or in our own life, God, may we see that the gospel provides healing power, provides hope and encouragement for our souls. God, we want to declare this morning, whether we are single or married, Lord, that Christ is exalted over all. Our God rules and our God reigns. So may our lips express what is in our hearts. May it bring you great glory and great praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.